Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Passages of Summer edition of the 7am Novelist. I'm Michelle Hoover, your host. Now, we all know that the early pages of a novel, short story, essay, memoir, whatever we're writing are really hard to get right. So this summer, we're discussing the choices that went into a range of authors' first pages in terms of scene, structure, language, etc., and how these choices might help you with your own first pages. Today, I'm very glad that we get to hear from an old friend of mine, Carter Sickles, who's going to to share the first pages of his latest novel, The Prettiest Star. Good morning, Carter. Thank you so much for being on the show. Morning, Michelle. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Carter's just moved to a new town and so was worried about his back. <laughs> Everyone needs to say, it's okay, Carter, because most people are listening to this on uh, um, audio anyway, but he's also probably a little bit tired. So I'm tired. Yeah. <laughs> gonna go with that. Uh, <laughs> Carter Sickles is the author of the novel *The Prettiest Star*. It was published by Hub City Press and was a winner of the 2021 Southern Book Prize and the Weatherford Award. *The Prettiest Star* was also selected as a Kirkus Best Book of 2020 and a Best LGBT Book of 2020 by O Magazine. His debut novel, The Evening Star, an Oregon Book Award finalist and a Lambda Literary Award finalist, was adapted into a feature film that premiered at the 2020 Sundance Film Festival. He is now an assistant professor of creative writing at North Carolina State University. All right, Carter, you've done so much amazing work and are heavily awarded for it, which I love, love seeing. And this book is just We'll just grab hold of your heart and wrench it into pieces and it's beautifully written and it's really an important book too so i'm really glad that we get to hear you read it to us and talk about it um so can you give us a little overview of the book before we read uh or hear from these first pages sure yeah thank you uh for for having me i'm happy um to be here so The Prettiest Star is it's set in 1986. Um, it's about Brian Jackson, a young gay man who was diagnosed with HIV. He's been living in New York City since he was 18. And uh, his boyfriend and many of his friends have, have died from AIDS. And he decides to return uh, to the small town where he grew up in Ohio. And so I wanted to examine kind of the AIDS crisis of the 80s like through the lens of rural America. And when he comes back home, his parents insist on trying to keep his sexuality and HIV status uh, a secret. And, you know, that weighs on Brian and begins to tear the family apart. So I think it's a book about um, family and home, shame, silence, queerness, um, survival, and kind of asking like how we um, take care of each other or yeah. how we fail each other. How we fail each other, um, right? Exactly. Yeah. Wonderful. Okay, let's hear these pages. And everyone, you can find the link to his pages um, on our podcast notes so that you can follow along if you wish. Okay, so I'm just going to read from the beginning and I'm just, uh, yeah, going to read on the screen here. April 20th, 1986, New York City. He went out with his camcorder. The sun was just beginning to rise. He left his place on 4th Street between A and B and walked west, passing the park and empty lots and boarded up buildings with broken windows and graffiti sprayed storefront metal gates. Sidewalks were littered with city souvenirs, an empty Coke can, a greasy paper plate, crack vials with balloon colored tops, red, green, yellow, purple. Hardly anyone was up on this 
this early on a Sunday. An old man swept church steps, a wino dug through a trash can, and a sturdy mule-faced woman with a floral print kerchief tied over curlers walked her little dog. Crackheads huddled in a doorway. Two pretty guys in jeans and leather jackets and boots crossed the street, chirping like excited birds, probably still cooked up from a night out, bodies exhausted, alive. Record everything, Sean told him, even my death, he said, especially my death. He saw the city through the eye of his video camera. The new morning light exposed the grime, the gum-stained sidewalks, garbage cans spilling over. But the city was hushed and golden as prayer. As the sky behind him turned pink, he walked toward a silvery blue. He didn't know the last time he was up so early or walked so far. When he first came to New York, he barely slept, too worried he'd miss something. He walked everywhere then, too scared to ride the subway, too broke for cabs. He wanted to understand how the city was laid out in a way only a real New Yorker could. He wanted to know where he was, to feel like he belonged. It was 1980 when he arrived. He rode a greyhound from the hills of Ohio, and all he brought with him were a couple of changes of clothes, a few cassette tapes, and 300 bucks. He was 18. Now he's 24. In AIDS years, does age even matter? Before New York, the only funeral he'd ever been to was his grandfather's, a man he hardly knew. And the last two years, he's been denying all men between 25 and 45. How many others does he know who are sick? They don't always tell each other. He doesn't want to go to any more funerals. It was a ridiculously long walk, but he didn't care. He needed to make the journey. The camera was heavy and a dull pain rippled down his shoulder and spine. He took breaks, stopping along the way to rest his legs and catch his breath, sitting on stoops or leaning against bus stops. A lifetime ago, he played baseball, shortstop. His body was invincible. All he knew of pain then were aches from pulling a muscle or something equally inconsequential. Now his body was no longer his own, taken over by various ailments, shortness of breath, sudden aches, blisters in his mouth. He shouldn't complain. He's been spared so far of the Kaposi sarcoma lesions. He's not going blind, not losing his mind. He wakes in the mornings and gets out of bed and his legs work and his heart beats, but he knows how things go, how quickly they shift, take you away. A couple months ago, a fever consumed him, a crackling in his lungs. When Annie took him to the hospital, he thought he wouldn't come back out. The doctor barely spoke to him, another faggot taking up bed space. He stopped in Washington Square Park. A few dealers were already lurking around the perimeters. He sat on a bench, looking up at the marbles, the park's marble arch where pigeons perched. Hundreds of thousands of birds hundreds or thousands of birds. The arch looked grand and beautiful against the brightening blue sky. This was New York. Suddenly the pigeons lifted into the air at once, a dance of gray and white beating wings. They soared overhead across the park and then changed direction and came back together. They landed on the arch and stood still again. It was like they'd never left. He crossed Sixth Avenue and headed into the winding web of the West Village where they'd lived together. The last of the darkness had lifted and the city was awake, awash in sunlight. The sidewalk scorned with people, taxis and graffiti bomb delivery trucks rumbled by. A woman wearing too many coats talked on a payphone and gestured wildly, holding an urgent conversation. But was there anyone else on the line? 
He wandered the crooked streets like a tourist, walking by brownstones and shops, a hat shop, a frame shop, a pet shop with puppies in the window. He recorded all of it. He stopped outside their old apartment building on Charles Street. He never felt like he belonged in the village where the gays with money lived. Sean didn't have money either, but he'd landed in a rent control apartment a dozen years ago. They were together two and a half years. They lived on the second floor, a corner apartment. Their bright pink curtains had been replaced by industrial beige Venetian blinds locking the windows like prison bars. Everything in the city reminded him of Sean. It was too much. The West Village used to be where you went to see manicured, muscular, moneyed men. Now it was turning into a hospital, a graveyard. Ghosts glided past him. He passed one ghost pushing another ghost in a wheelchair, probably neither over 40. But their sunken faces and shriveled bodies were like that of very sick, ancient octogenarians. The one in the wheelchair had glassy, sightless eyes, his head tilted toward the treetops, and his companion, who was pushing the wheelchair, looked out from a face ravaged by a hideous map of purple-black lesions. Another emaciated ghost man leaned on a cane. Two others held hands, their eyes big and dull and resigned, city of ashes, city of bones. When he reached the west side piers, he sat on a ledge and gave his shoulder a break from the camera. The pigeon flapped its wings but didn't fly away. It stood its ground and stared at him with unsettling orange eyes. His first couple years in New York, this was a different landscape, crowded with men sunbathing, shaking their hips to Donna's summer, writing poetry, checking each other out, finding dates and lovers and quick fucks down by the decaying edges of the docks. Not many guys came here now, too afraid. A couple of boys turning tricks planted themselves and waited. Others headed up to 11th Ave. The sunlight reflected on the water and the current lapped against the piers and over the wooden posts up, sticking up like submerged trees, reminders of another time. The last two weeks of Sean's life were a blur, but also creaked by painfully. He'd lapsed into demented babbling. He had a tube shoved down his throat. He died in the hospital alone. At the moment of Sean's death, instead of being at his boyfriend's side, he was standing in the hallway, staring at a vending machine, waiting for a paper cup to fill with thin, bitter coffee. He no longer went out, not even for work. He'd lost his job. Nobody would hire him now. They'd see his sickness. They'd know. Annie, his roommate and best friend, said she would help with rent and take care of him, but he didn't want that. He wanted to leave. For a long time, he sat there watching young guys, many of them already infected, hustling for Johns as tugboats and barges moved like giant fish across the Hudson. He thought about Sean and the other men he loved. The morning gave way to early afternoon and the cool air warmed until the sun felt hot on his face. The video camera sat on his lap, turned off. Nobody knew he was here. Nobody glanced his way. He was already turning into one of the thousands of ghosts. It wouldn't have been so hard to finish things off. He'd heard about others going this way, taking control before the virus did. He'd read the headlines, heard the whispers. They leaped off the Brooklyn Bridge or swallowed pills or used a rope. If you went too late like Sean, then nothing could be done. You'd suffer in a hospital bed, die alone. But now the urgency wasn't there or a different kind of urgency had taken hold. The drop off the pier wasn't going to kill him. Although who knew what sharp objects lay beneath the surface, maybe the current would sleep him under. The contaminated filthy water might kill him, but that would take too long. Anyway, he was already contaminated. He could swim along the river, floating, buoyant, or dive down and force himself to hold his breath, but he knew how the body would fight, do everything it could to survive. 
The water looked frozen. Seagulls screamed and circled behind him, the constant hum of traffic. A couple of kids walked by, one carrying a boombox on his skinny shoulders, and the beats rippled out across the afternoon. He was thinking about the place he left behind, his grandmother, his little sister. He was thinking of green hills and the clean smell of baseball fields and the light-filled woods on a summer day, his mother, his father, who he had not spoken to in years. For the first time in a long time, he wasn't afraid. He walked to the edge of the piers and looked up where the tiny green lady rose from the water like Jesus, holding up her flame, welcoming the poor and the tired. He couldn't jump. He couldn't let go. Excellent. Wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing that. Okay. Did you always start your book here? Absolutely not. Yeah. (laughs) How did you make your way to finding this moment to begin? I was trying to think about that because the book took about, you know, probably around four years um, to write. And I think I want to say, you know, it wasn't even there in the earliest, certainly not in the earliest draft, even maybe second draft. I think it's probably maybe a year and a half in before maybe two years before I landed on that as the opening. And what were you responding to when you found this place to begin? Other people's comments or just your own thinking about the book expanding? I think it was my, at this point, it was still sort of my own kind of feelings around what was missing and what needed, um, how I wanted the readers to kind of enter into this world. I mean, the novel is um, multiple uh, points of view. So you hear from Brian, his his younger sister and his mother, and they're all um, for the most part in first person. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this, you know, I wanted to sort of, the whole book takes place in the small town in Ohio. And I wanted to look at what was happening to queer men who returned to those Um, small towns that had rejected them and what the AIDS epidemic looked like there. But I think I wanted to also like acknowledge and kind of pay homage to what was going on in New York City. Mm -hmm. And so it felt important to like set that first scene there. Mm -hmm. And so I wrote this scene and some other scenes of Brian kind of in his uh, life in New York. And I thought, I don't know, it was one of those moments, I think, where you sort of, um, it did sort of come to me, right? (laughs) I mean, I've been living with the novel for like at least a year. And and so I wrote, what would it look like, you know, when he's sort of saying goodbye um, to New York. And I wanted it to feel, I guess that third person narrator gave me a little bit more, distance and I wanted it to feel kind of cinematic. I wanted it to be a narrator who was a little more objective and could kind of show Brian in that scene. But then we otherwise go into first person when we revisit him later. Yeah. Yeah. So, but you thought that the change of point of view there was very important uh, for you in this opening, like, like here. Yeah, I did. I mean, I felt like, um originally so then the first chapter after this or the chapter after this is um his mother's point of view in first person and that also never felt quite right because I didn't want to start 
the novel with her. Um, you know, this is a novel about a queer character and I wanted very much to center him and make sure that he has a voice. So it does sort of start and end uh, with him. Yeah. It kind of, I feel, and this could be, I, it, the, using the third person here in the opening for him and then switching to first kind of turns him into an everyman. Um, and and he kind of is in this space, you know, he's one, he's one of many, many that have um, suffered from this terrible disease and this terrible um, onslaught of losses. Um, yeah. So it kind of just welcomes us in to that um, just broader, broader story that's more than just than just his story um, in the ways that it's kind of sad. And then you also start with the first sentence, he went out with his camcorders. So there's a lot here about witnessing mm -hmm. and recording. Um, why was that important to you? Yeah. Um, so he is sort of this amateur, you know, he's living in New York in the East Village in, in the 80s, and he's kind of this amateur video artist. And, and I think you and I are about the same age. And you remember the 80s when everyone had a sort of camcorders were becoming popular. People would show up to family holidays and or the holidays and family gatherings with them. Um, and so it made um, recording video really kind of accessible in a way that it hadn't been um, before. And then during this time, you were seeing a lot of queer people who were documenting um, their lives. And I think a part of that <clears throat> was because they were dying and it was a way to, to document and to record. Um, <clears throat> and so Brian's, the other sections, most of the other sections of the novel in the first person um, are set up as if Brian is kind of speaking into his camera. There's sort of these video diaries, um, you know, and he is trying, it's a way for him to kind of control his, his story and speak sort of directly to the reader or to the viewer. Um, yeah, and so it felt important to have that camera set up right from the beginning. Yeah. The, you know. And he really is recording everything. I mean, the first, some of the first, you know, you're, you're walking us through his landscape here and we see first the broken windows, graffiti, the trash. Um, but then we also get the two pretty guys in jeans. Um, you get that beautiful image of the, the pigeons later. Um, so there really is everything, all, all the bad, the ugly, everything. And then you're sneaking in little leaks about Sean. So the first we get is record everything Sean told him, even my death, he said, especially my death. And then we get a little more about Sean later and then even more about Sean later, just kind of almost entering, uh, entering his consciousness or him allowing Sean to enter it because there's this always kind of, there, you know, people we lose are always with us and yet we need to protect ourselves sometimes and hold that off. So how did you... How did you navigate that, like the present moment of him walking through the city and then these thoughts about Sean kind of leaking in and beginning to take over more of the narrative? Yeah, um, well, I think, again, it was in some ways that third person get give me that flexibility of being able to sort of show Brian kind of walking and then what he was getting sort of on the camera, but then being able to move you know, closer to his interior. And I think I wanted to, again, it felt important because Sean 
is so invisible when he yeah. gets to Ohio, right? And like the family is not going to talk about John. And so I wanted to, um, you know, acknowledge him and, and show their love right from the beginning. Um, and, you know, I mean, I lived in New York um, for not during the 80s, but uh, for about eight or nine years. And so, I mean, I was visiting New York when I was working on this book and I did, you know, I would like do the walk <laughs> to make sure like, what does this walk um, look like? It is a very long walk um, and think about what it looked like. The piers, of course, looked very different, right? During um, yeah. the 80s, but. And then, and then there's a lot, you're able to hit a lot, a lot about belonging several times in this opening um, that, when he it seems like when he first came here and and still now there's aren't quite ways in which he belongs and there are ways that he belongs and then going back home which is also you know hoping for a safe harbor but it is not a safe harbor i mean so much of the book seems to be about belonging that this gorgeous line with pigeons lifted into the air at once a dance of gray and white beating wings they soared overhead across the park and then changed direction and came back together they landed on the ark and and stood still again it was like they'd never left but he's not going to be able to experience that right i mean that's that's his hope i think that's all our hopes when we return home but um yeah can you yeah. talk more about that sense of belonging that he's searching for and the difficulties there yeah, thanks for that close reading of the that image. Yeah, I think that um I mean I'm interested in sort of homecoming stories and how kind of complicated those can be, especially, you know, thinking from like a queer perspective, um, that those homecoming stories are often um yeah. you know, filled with tension. And I think there's this um, you know, I think sometimes it's like why would you even go back, right? Like, why not just stay in New York? But um, there's still this kind of longing to feel seen by your biological family, to feel loved by them, to feel, um, you know, kind of sort of taken in. And I think that is what, um, you know, he's experiencing and he loved New York, but New York has changed since he's been there, right? And as I said, it's turned into a graveyard in a way and everyone's becoming kind of a ghost um and dying around him right right and so he even thinks of diving into the the water to just he just wants to leave um and i also want to point out to others that so there's the line his first couple of years in new york this was a different landscape crowded with men sunbathing shaking their hips to Donna Summer writing poetry just a reminder so you already talked about how much it has changed and that's one reason why he's left and just the terrible toll that AIDS took on this particular community um, but also in general thinking about landscape in terms of the people that populate it I think is really important because I think a lot of people think of landscape in terms of um, natural um, you know, uh, hills and trees and grass, but but here, particularly in a city, I think the people that populate it and how the people that populate it, how that changes um, the landscape when they are lost, um, mm -hmm. it creates that hole. And then you later, you move it, how did you work with the other points of views as you move throughout the book? Because that can be difficult. I have also written 
I am obsessed with multiple points of views. I seem unable to write a book that has only one point of view and then several first person points of views, which can also be very difficult. Um, how did you navigate that? Yeah, it's it was it's tough, right? It's difficult. Um, I sometimes I would do it where I was sort of working um, just on like one character, you know, like I would just stick with that character for a few weeks. And I wanted each like I wanted Brian Jess, his mother, to each have their own kind of arc, right? And so like that it would hold up in a way, like their story would sort of hold up even if I didn't have these kind of multiple points of view. Um, and then other weeks I would kind of put the chapters together where I would start with Brian, his mother, you know, and kind of move back and forth. Um, I think the hardest part for me was just I wanted to make sure that their voices sounded distinct and unique and that that first person voice, right, didn't sound alike for, for yeah. each of them, like didn't sound like my first person um, voice. So um, with Brian, once I sort of figured out the, the film and um, where he's sort of creating these film diaries that helped me kind of enter into his character and kind of enter into his voice. And then Jess, I mean, Sharon is the mother. She's got kind of an older um, voice. And then Jess is sort of this savvy, like 14 year old who's kind of obsessed with whales. And um, so a lot of hers center around these like factoids about whales that she, a lot of her chapters you know, focus on that or, not focus on that, but touch on that. So it was a kind of a way for me to just find her diction and her voice and language. Mm -hmm. So to find a, a particular image that you can focus each voice on and who they're talking to or the reason that they're talking can right. help you forge the differences in voice. I'm looking at Sharon, which is the second chapter. She actually begins with we instead mm. of I, which I think is is kind of interesting um, for her. Um, I don't. I think you, I think you nailed these voices. If any of you guys out there are looking for a, a multiple point of view book that is really makes the voice work, um, I think this one is definitely one to grab. All right, Carter, I have to let you go. Um, <laughs> I need to get these folks back to their writing desks. So everyone, you can find our full schedule on our Substack page at 7amnovelist.substack.com. You can subscribe there for updates. You can also find our full range of podcast episodes on that page, including episodes from our past two writing challenges. We did a really... We did a 50-day writing challenge last fall. We did a 31-day writing challenge in March. We had so many teachers and writers talking to us about writing, and I do recommend going back and looking at those. And if you like what we're doing and like our podcast, please follow, rate, and review it so that we can find other listeners. Okay, Carter, one last question for you. What sure. advice would you give to our listeners about their first pages? Um, I think, you know, especially with a novel that you just have to know that um, the process is messy and that those first initial, you know, those pages that you initially write may and often are not going to end up as your first um, pages when you finish the story. Um, and so I think it's just, you know, there's, even though my work is is pretty linear, I don't write it necessarily in a linear way. And I think you have to be really kind of flexible 
and and allow the mess to be there you know yeah I yeah I don't write mine linear either I also just I jump to whatever is giving me energy at the moment yeah like what do you what's exciting yeah exactly Um, I do get that answer a lot that the first pages should be messy so I've started to ask a a follow-up question how do you make yourself comfortable with the mess or are you just as a person comfortable with mess um no I mean I I sometimes will still like believe or trick myself into believing that wherever I'm starting is the first chapter like I said I started this book in a different place and I still have this first chapter but there's a part of me that you know knows or tries to remind myself that that may not um right right that that may shift and that it's hard it's sort of like for me the beginnings are kind of like finding the ending and usually once I once I um once I find what I think is really the right place to begin or end, like it is like, it just, um, it's like, there could be no other beginning or ending, but it's going to take me a while to kind of get there. Yeah. So basically you're tricking yourself that I've got it. I've got my beginning. (laughs) (laughs) In time knowing, okay, I don't have my beginning until my end. Exactly. Okay. I think everyone, you just have to be comfortable with mess. It's just the way it is. And, and tell yourself, that you you've got it that's that's fine too you can lie to yourself uh left and right i think that works too okay Carter, thank you so so much for being with us and for sharing your work this kind of book right now is very very important with what is happening currently with the lgbtq um, plus communities so i do recommend going out and grabbing it and reading it and talking about it to others and thank you carter for helping us like a leaf inside the wind And you go where it tells you to go But you never wonder why There isn't nothing here at all